You're listening to the third episode of Practical Law's Inside In-House Interview Series, a podcast brought to you by Thomson Reuters Legal. My name is Tyrrelly Chillog, and I'm the head of in-house and commercial at Practical Law Australia and an experienced in-house lawyer. In this series, you'll be hearing from a variety of in-house counsel across different industries and stages of their careers. We will hear stories of their career journeys and gain insights into their experiences on what it takes to be an effective in-house counsel. We've got a special program today being our last episode of 2020, but it's an extra special program because we're talking about end-of-year parties and what that means during COVID with the lawyers who understand this best, the in-house employment lawyers. Let's meet our guests. Allow me to introduce you first to Kim Corbell. Kim is the Head of Employee Relations and Policy for Metcash, a role that she holds as a part of a flagship job share arrangement, but we'll come to that later. Welcome to the podcast, Kim. Thanks for having me, Tyranly. I'm also joined today by my practical law colleagues who write and edit Practical Law Australia's popular employment law coverage, employment lawyers Sophie Bonnet and Katrina Seg. Sophie and Katrina, welcome to the Inside In-House podcast. Thanks for the opportunity to be here, Tyranly. Thanks, Tyranly. It's great to be here. So lovely to have everyone together for this very festive podcast. So Kim, let's jump straight in. What was your journey to becoming an in-house lawyer and specifically, how did you end up specialising in employment law? Well, I mean, how far back do you want me to go? Because law is actually my second career. I originally trained and worked as a medical scientist for a number of years before making the decision to change careers. I thought that studying law might be a good way to still use my medical science degree and when I finished studying I landed a role in private practice in an IP team. I was in private practice for about eight years and during that time was sent on a number of secondments. Spending that time working directly within the business made me realise that that's what I wanted to do, certainly not pursuing partnership. <laughs> I had my first daughter around this time too and so the timing worked perfectly to make the move into an in-house role and into a part-time role. I went in as a general commercial lawyer for a food manufacturing company. When I started, there was no one there that specialised in employment law and the HR team briefed people, briefed lawyers directly. The general counsel wanted to get a better understanding of how much money they were spending on legal fees, what types of questions they were asking and how often they might be asking the same questions. So I put my hand up and agreed to ask as a sort of, act as a sort of post box, taking queries from the HR team and getting advice from the law firm in return. I soon realised that the HR team weren't going to be too happy with me, having to go through me, if I didn't have something intelligent to say when they called, and so I started learning as much as I could. Every time I went to the law firm, I would say, why, what about this, what if we did this differently, and eventually, over time, I developed my knowledge in employment law. The more I knew, the more the HR team used me, and so then I had to make a decision about whether I focused solely on employment or continued to try and balance the general commercial as well. With the support of the general counsel and the HR director, I decided to focus solely on employment law from that point on and I don't think I could go back. (laughs) So while I'm certainly not an in-house lawyer by design, I really feel like I've landed in the best place and found the right area for me. It's one of those things, isn't it, Um, when you're working in-house that a lot of the time what you end up doing is something that you put your hand up for and, and then that suddenly becomes your specialisation. Um, I heard someone else talking about that only only yesterday. Um, and Sophie, you've also worked as an in-house lawyer. Tell us about your career journey and how that came about. Sure. But firstly, can I say, Kim, what an amazing career trajectory that was. <laughs> very, <you>. very cool. <laughs> 
I've taken a slightly more traditional path. I started my legal career at an international law firm, which allowed me the opportunity to then take a year out and do an associate position at the Fair Work Commission, where I got a real taste for employment law. I got the opportunity to settle in that workplace relations team of that firm. I then moved to a national firm for a couple of years, so continuing in private practice, before I got the opportunity to jump in-house as one of uh, three employment law councils at an AXS-listed healthcare company. So that company allowed me to get a really deep dive into the industry of medical centres, diagnostic imaging and pathology. That's fantastic. And we're very glad that you're here with us. (laughs) Thank you. Um, It's such an interesting and diverse range of work that in-house lawyers do. I'm wondering, Kim, can you talk us through what a typical day, as much as that's possible, is like for you? And really, I think the answer to that is a typical day is one that rarely goes as planned. I often start the day with a clear list of what I hope to get achieved and find myself getting to 4pm without having done very much of it at all. Most of my work, though, uh, in this role is spent on the phone or on video calls. Certainly now, that's the way we communicate often, providing advice to managers or support to HR advisors and working through tricky industrial relations situations with our IR manager. In addition to that, we review a lot of disciplinary letters, especially where a termination is likely to be contested, and enterprise agreements. We have about 40 enterprise agreements that cover various parts of our workforce, and so that means at any one time, there will always be a few of those that are being negotiated and bargained and need attention. And so I want to ask you a little bit about what you sort of perceive for our audience who are listening today who perhaps don't have an employment specialisation but are practising in-house. What do you think some of the key differences are between being an in-house lawyer and being an in-house employment lawyer? Sure. When I was a general commercial in-house lawyer, I felt like I was more a a jack-of-all-trades. Now, as an employment lawyer, the work, while still varied, is certainly much more focused in one area. Um, when I was uh, working as a as a general in-house lawyer, there was a lot more of crossover and collaboration with other members of the legal team, sort of sharing work and picking brains and... and um, I'm nodding along. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> test, test, testing sort of what they thought as you move forward. And as the employment lawyer, when I've sat in the legal team, there is much less certainly cross-collaboration with me <laughs> uh, to the point that in a previous organisation, the general counsel said that he knew the HR team liked me and needed me, but he'd much rather have my headcount as another commercial lawyer. Where I am now, I sit in the HR team and that makes a lot more sense for this role. We're still involved with the legal team but sit within the team that directly use us and give us advice. So it's a a much more welcoming and collaborative environment. I think I'd say also that as an in-house lawyer in a general role, you can often be seen to be a blocker, the person who's saying no, or they get to their final point and you're the one going, you can't do that. I find more often in employment law, you're helping to facilitate the right outcome. And so it's more of a collaborative get to the right place process rather than, uh, no, I know you've spent all this time, but you can't do that. I think all in-house lawyers would really like to be engaged very early on. I think, you know, certainly we can do the most for our clients when we are part of that sort of collaborative process. And I think it's really interesting that you're sitting with the employment team and perhaps that's something we're seeing a little bit more with employment lawyers actually sort of sitting away from the legal team. I don't know, Sophie, um, what, is, what is your view on that? Do you, what's your been your experience of the di- difference between being an in-house lawyer and being an employment lawyer? Thanks, Shirley. I, I 100% agree with Kim in that it's a very much more collaborative experience I personally had in, in-house with the HR team. You're very much day-to-day on the tools, so to speak, with your your HR team, even though technically I think I still sat in the legal team, 
we were considered and maybe treated as a bit more of an island in that sense. It was, you know, you you would often be well, going along in the journey, I think, is, the, is the, the most appropriate way to couch it. A couple more things that jump out at me about my experience as an in-house employment law specialist as opposed to, say, a generalist. The first thing I noticed personally going in-house is that as important as giving the specific legal advice to a particular matter was, I was often having to take a step back and educate and take my stakeholders along in the journey of what broader employment law context would be. I think, uh, you know, without tooting our own horns, employment law is a unique beast. And being able to step back and explain a little bit of the context and then provide legal advice and educate the business a little bit more as to maybe some flags that often appear in an employment law context was something that I spent most of my first year in-house doing. The other interesting trend I found as an in-house employment law specialist is that tendency in the business to view the employment law specialist as part of HR. We are so much linked with the HR function, even if we didn't actually either physically sit in the function or as a matter of course, we sat in the legal function, but um, we were often seen with HR. So they, you know, I think a lot of the business perception was that we formed part of of HR. So I think employment specialists are in this really interesting position where you're building rapport and you're trying to uh, create connections with stakeholders and advise them on matters in one day. And in the very next day, you might be called upon to advise on a matter that might involve said executive or manager. So I think I learned a lot of soft skills and developed a lot of my, you know, you've got to be building discretion at all times, professionalism at all times, being able to be approachable yet still be clear to each and every stakeholder that you're advising the business and that might not necessarily involve just rubber stamping or going along with whatever strategy that they're trying to get your advice on or trying to implement. Soft skills are something that we talk about a lot um, in terms of in-house lawyer skills and um, communication, of course, is everything. Katrina, I've seen watching you nodding along here. I want to ask you, prior to joining Practical Law, you worked for many years as an employment lawyer in private practice. What are some of the challenges being in private practice and being briefed by in-house counsel on employment matters? What's your experience there? It's, It's been so interesting I'd say at the outset to hear those observations because it is very different working in private practice than it is obviously in-house. I think Tiraly uh, the first thing that comes to mind is that as these two have both alluded to in-house counsel are just so busy <laughs> I suppose in the nature of in-house is that you're dealing with so many different issues across so many different areas and I think you have to have your fingers in so many different pies and from the perspective of a lawyer in private practice it's really useful uh, working with the general counsel who has a unique insight into the business, that's certainly invaluable. But it's also challenging because because of those constraints that the general in-house counsel has, they will not always have an understanding of the complexities and the nuances of employment and workplace relations law, uh, which Sophie alluded to. And that can be very challenging. I think in-house counsel will often come to you with a situation, but because they're obviously not specialists in the area, they won't know the type of questions necessarily to ask of a private practice lawyer. And what is required often is a lot of digging around to get to the crux of the issue and correctly identify all the potential risks. Uh, so that can be, that can pose its own challenges. But it's also, it's also quite rewarding, I think, working with in-house counsel because you can work together 
to identify those issues and then obviously work out an appropriate resolution. Another challenge I think that springs to mind is that it's sometimes difficult trying to explain to in-house counsel that applications under the Fair Work Act are traditionally a no-cost jurisdiction, which means that um, organisations have to think long and hard about the benefits of uh, defending proceedings. I think it's true that a lot of in-house lawyers don't have that employment specialisation and I would count myself um, in that in that bucket. So I guess as a follow-up question, can I ask you, you know, how can private practice lawyers and our, our private practice friends who are listening along to the podcast today add value to their in-house employment lawyer colleagues? I think that the main value that private practice lawyers can add to in-house employment lawyers uh, is the ability to be able to distance themselves from the business and to give the matter our undivided attention. We don't have that challenge that Sophie mentioned of there being a tension between the ethical and professional obligations of being a lawyer and the commercial demands of the business. Our sole objective is to provide legal advice uh, and I think that's certainly the value that we can add to an in-house counsel. Really, really valuable. Changing focus slightly now, I want to ask you, Kim, about the job share arrangement that you have at Medicash because I really feel that this is a progressive arrangement and that we're going to see more and more of this in the practice of law in-house as this evolves and changes over time. So can you share with our audience how your job share arrangement works? Sure. Strangely, perhaps similar to my specialisation in employment law, my job share arrangement also did not come about by design. (laughs) But um, I had taken a role doing a mat leave cover for a period of time a number of years ago. And the lawyer I was doing the mat leave cover for, I thought after I met her, oh, what a pity we won't work together because I really liked her. And as she was getting ready to come back at the end of her time off and I was looking for my next role, that's when I saw the job advertised with Metcash. And I interviewed with them and made it clear that I wanted to work part-time and they said, well, that's fine. We're, we're happy to keep keep progressing you and talking to you about that. The more I interviewed, the more nervous I got about how big the role was and how I would be able to do it in fewer days if that was okay with them. And at the same time, I was talking to Nicole, my now job share partner, about her decisions in coming back to work and what that looked like for her now that she had a young family and trying you know, to navigate her way back. And we discussed between us, what if we, you know, there's this great job that I'd started you know, talking to Metcash about out and and they seem really open to different ways of working. What if we presented ourselves as a as a job share opportunity? It probably took more convincing of the recruiter to propose that to Metcash than than Metcash on the other end. So that's really interesting, isn't it? Because sort of my very limited knowledge of employment law, but I sort of understand that the job share arrangement itself is not perhaps a novelty from an employment law perspective. It really just requires buy-in from the employer and the potential employees to make something like that work. I'm looking at Katrina and Sophie here. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think there's less of an employment law issue with a job share arrangement necessarily more than just a logistical and a HR function to be able to make sure that the arrangement is working day to day on the ground for all parties. It is it is fairly unusual. Yes. And it surprises me that it's still so when I mentioned to Nangal I was doing this, she said why are people so interested in job share? Like, is it that uncommon? I'm like, yeah, look around. Who do you know that, that job shares and that really works for? And I, and I agree it takes the right people and the right organisation and the right role and they can, they're not easy things to find. But it is the best, the best have, work arrangement yeah, I've ever had. That real synchronicity, don't you, between the business and the people and the objectives have to be mutually, mutually consistent, I suppose, don't they? And you have to have the same objectives. And those objectives have to continue during the arrangement. I mean, things shift, people's lives change those arrangements that might have been set up originally you know in January might not necessarily fit in July 
So I think it takes, it's like any relationship, it takes work. Did you know the in-house Centre on Practical Law has loads of useful resources specifically for in-house lawyers? From up-to-date legal presentations to workflow and approval templates to guides for managing your legal team's needs, you can find resources to make your work life more efficient and effective on Practical Law. Now let's go back inside in-house. So Kim, I want to ask you, what do you think are the key ingredients to making a job share work? It's it's tricky, I, I think, it, but it shouldn't be. It takes it takes the right people wanting to to work together. It takes the right role, one that can be managed. And and I think people are quick to say, oh, well, this role can't be done that way. I think, you know, we've got a huge role with quite a lot of responsibility and we've worked out a way to make it work. And it takes an organisation that's open to accepting that there are more than one or two ways of working. I actually think a job share arrangement delivers far more value for all the people involved than any part-time arrangement I've had before. It's interesting that we still think that job share is somehow a novelty in in the practice of law. How uncommon is it or how common is it to be engaged in job share arrangements? I would say when we joined Metcash, there was another job share arrangement in the HR team. So they, at least when we proposed it, you know, there'd already been one arrangement in there working. I've not, I don't know anyone else. I don't know anyone else in law or otherwise that, that job shares. I've personally been in a team that had one job share between two senior associates who were both working part-time and sharing that full-time senior associate position. So I would also say it's fairly uncommon. I concur. I've, I've not seen it before in practice. I think it's terrific that it obviously occurs, but I've, I've not seen it either. So this is the part of the podcast recording where we're putting on our reindeer antlers and getting celebratory as we look towards the end of the year. And as employment lawyers, Katrina, Sophie and Kim, I imagine that the festive season is perhaps the most stressful time of the year for employment lawyers. What are some of the risks to employers when their employees behave badly? I'm sure you have lots of war stories to tell. Oh, I'll jump in first. Um, yes, yes. I've heard colleagues say that it's the employer's equivalent of a legal hangover. Um, oh, the dear. inevitable <laughs> issue, yes, yeah, the inevitable issue or incident that arises at an end of year celebration. Beyond the usual unfair dismissal, general protections and discrimination, work health safety risks that always accompany these types of incidents, I think. From my perspective, the one risk that sometimes flies under the radar is the risk of a matter increasingly likely to become an issue of vicarious liability for the employer. So particularly now when we're well and truly into a post-Me Too era and, and also that the world has taken an increased focus on work health and safety, though the issue of vicarious liability I think is one which should, um, if it's not already, be on the forefront of employers' minds when they're talking about an end-of-year celebration. But Katrina, what do you think? Look, I, I think that you're right. The main issue I think with, with Christmas parties generally, and they do cause employment lawyers so much stress, I can... I can <laughs> I can tell you. I think it's just it's just fundamentally it comes down to a lack of I think communication between employers and their pl- employees and I think it's it's really important to have that communication as to what expectations are before you have the the Christmas party. Um that's I think where the biggest problems arise is just that lack of expectation about behaviors, about conduct both during and after the function and I think that can be a real downfall for businesses. I think another major issue arises when employees, I think, again, this stems from the lack of communication, perhaps on the part of the employer, but employees not appreciating that the function is actually an extension of the workplace. And there's still that nexus between the employment and the function and the out-of-hours conduct. And I think employers as well perhaps need to communicate that disciplinary procedures will still be followed through, despite the fact that employees may be at at a function. 
at a workplace function like a Christmas party. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that and add to the cocktail, no pun intended, but the, the use of alcohol at end of year functions is lethal to these types of issues. And when you add the overlay with the, some of these organisations, and Kim jump in here, but people are from a variety of cultures that generations backgrounds so when you add alcohol everyone is mixing in this one social event there's obviously going to be an increase in the opportunity for misunderstandings there's going to be an increase of carelessness in different comments actions which are all part and parcel of an incident that might fall across our desk the next day and I'd say not just what happens at the end of year function but what happens at the function after the end of year function because while I think employers are starting to get better at communicating that, you know, the way you behave at the end of year function is as if you were at work because this is a work-related event. There is less appreciation or understanding that when things go on, it can still have an impact on your employment, whether it's the after party that you go to with five of your colleagues or or whatever happens next. You know, there's there's not a clear line between when it's when it stops being work-related and starts being That's completely right. separate. And it's incumbent on employers to really create those boundaries. Okay. So this, the, the party starts at this time, it ends at this time and anything you choose to do afterwards, that's up to you. That's not our responsibility. And while Christmas 2020 will no doubt be as exceptional as 2020 was for all the wrong reasons, um, COVID must add that extra dimension of risk to an organisation. So we've seen a lot of parties happening remotely where people are, you know, delivering the decorations, the alcohol to people. I don't know how that works in an employment context, but I'm guessing not very well. <laughs> yes, I think um, an end of year celebration is going to look very different be it either if you're going to attempt as an employer to continue with, say, a physical celebration, so a celebration of in the office or at a particular spot, or if you're going to attempt this new beast that is the virtual end-of-year function. I think you'll see often if you're going to continue with a more traditional approach, all of our usual risks that are, arise from a work health safety perspective, bullying, harassment, intimidation, they will all be there. But if you decide to tackle this new thing that is a virtual end of year function, you're going to have to actually consider and sit down and look at what are those, what's the new risk factors that are going to come about. So I want to pick up, Sophie, on something you've just mentioned, which is the virtual Christmas party. Is that now a thing? It is a thing. I, th <laughs> I think it will be a thing. I mean, it's 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 like the nature of 2020, isn't it? It's it's who knows <laughs> what's around the corner. It just you just don't know. But I think that it will be a thing. I think we've just this year we've just seen this seismic shift in the way that employers are managing their employees. So we've seen. I mean, we couldn't have anticipated at the beginning of the year that everyone would be pretty much everyone would be working from home at least for a certain period of time, and then the obligations that are on employees, as Sophie alluded to you know to make sure that you know, all the risks have been assessed that hazards have been removed we've seen things like staggered start times um, we've seen changed office configurations we've seen so many different changes to the way we perceive work this year I don't see why that would change when it comes to the Christmas party to be honest I think a lot of organizations might be just scared to put some sort of end of year function on there's a lot now to be considering when you're trying to bring a number of people together in one room so I think a virtual party might be quite a realistic solution for a lot of employers that uh, you know they might not necessarily be aware of or, or want to engage in that kind of increased risk of having a function physically in an office but also there might be 
be other factors, commercial being the main one. Businesses might not be able to afford to do those big thousand dollar bashes that they used to be doing for their for their employees, yet they still want to do something to to show their appreciation for what must be a tough year for everyone. Yeah, for sure. And I imagine that just because your Christmas party is online, it doesn't mean that you're then sort of free of all those obligations that arise from your employees' behaviour. Absolutely. They, they're new and they're varied pressures, but an end of year function is still a work function. That's still not an exception. It's and still I, an extension of the workplace. And I think you'd have to say even harder to control than when you have a end of year function where everyone's in the same place. So this might be the million dollar question, but what, what is the Christmas party going to look like this year? I think it really depends on where you live. There are obviously government restrictions in place across the country to varying degrees. Um, so I think that that will obviously have an impact on the type of physical Christmas party that you'll see this year. And as Sophie mentioned, I think regardless of the fact that there may be looser restrictions in some particular jurisdictions. I I really do not think we're going to see big Christmas parties this year for a number of reasons. I think that we will see, as we mentioned before, this trend of of the Friday night drinks and the working from home extending to the virtual Christmas party. So I think that, yeah, that we'll definitely see the Christmas party move to a virtual function, whether that's people sitting around with reindeer antlers on and... Mm -hmm. Like we are. Like we are. (laughs) Getting into the Christmas Christmas spirit. Playing games or heaven forbid even doing some some dancing or I'm not sure what it will look like. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And it's been quite fun um, in our work environment to be thinking of these situations because we have been developing a lot of materials to to cover off on these new issues that might be arising due to, for example, restrictions in certain states or territories, what conduct can still be constituted as out-of-hours conduct that an employer might be looking to regulate in a virtual party environment, social media policies, all those types of things that need to be considered and updated in light of this new beast. These are the things that we worry about at Practical Law, right? That's right. right. And so finally, if I can um, maybe ask each of you, what should in-house counsel be doing now to get uh, end-of-year function ready and support the business across the silly season? I might ask you each for your top tips. Communicate, communicate, communicate is is what I would say is the most important thing, I think, for in-house counsel. Communicate the fact that the Christmas party is an extension of the workplace and appropriate behaviour is necessary. And if not, normal disciplinary procedures will still be applied to employees. Communicate the fact that there is an official start and an official finishing time and that staff are aware, as Kim mentioned, that any pre or post party functions are not authorised by the employer and any conduct or behaviour that occurs at those particular parties is is certainly not condoned. Uh, I would absolutely agree and add to that that once you've updated all of your policies to take into account this this new end of year function, I would be reminding those employees of those policies. Most particularly, you would look at your sexual harassment, bullying and discrimination policies. You'd also be looking at your IT policies, so appropriate use of the company's equipment and IT systems that you're going to be on, as well as appropriate use of social media. So, you know, employees posting snapshots, for instance, of your virtual party, that would all be part and parcel of your communication of expectations prior to the function beginning. I'm happy to be the Scrooge at the end of it and actually say <laughs> I'd really, you know, be considering whether it's something that needs to go ahead this year and there are other ways for employers to thank employees for, you know, for making it through a hard time and perhaps even considering whether we 
celebrate Christmas in July next year and, and thank people when it's easier and safer to do it and we're hopefully on the other side. But pushing on with a end-of-year function in whatever form, I think when, when things are even harder to manage for a number of reasons is something that should be considered, whether it's worthwhile yes. going ahead. Yes, if employers do tend to go ahead, I think it's going to be a delicate dance. Absolutely. Katrina, you recently published a help and information note for our Practical Law subscribers, aptly named Christmas in the Time of COVID-19. And that obviously assumes that a Christmas function of sorts is going ahead. Kim, what are some alternatives to a Christmas function not going ahead? How can employers celebrate their employees? And I think Sophie mentioned before, you know, that, that while things look very different at this time of year than they did last year, employers still want to be able to say thank you, especially to the employees who have perhaps, you know, had to work even harder or go through different things this year. So an idea that we've seen at our organisation is that all employees are receiving a gift card from management to thank them, you know, to, to say we can't have the Christmas party this year. It's it's not right for a number of reasons, but thank you for your efforts. We appreciate you, which is, I think, a gesture that will be appreciated in return. I absolutely agree with that as one of possible alternatives. I think if employers are looking for an alternative to an end of year function, they're just thinking it might all be too hard or the risks are too great, but they still want to show that appreciation. I think it's a matter of putting your heads together and keeping the ultimate aim in mind. What's You're trying to show appreciation to your employees. You're trying to show say thank you. You're, you're trying to recognise achievement. And what are, what are some areas where you can do that? I think gift vouchers are a really valid way to do that, particularly where it might be as simple as food vouchers. And that could be very, very important to employees who may be struggling this year as well. So so it, it can be very, very simple. And meaningful. And achieve the same result. Kim, Sophie and Katrina, it has been fascinating to hear your stories and your unique experiences of working as in-house lawyers within the employment law specialisation and your tips for dealing with interview functions. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for the Inside In-House podcast series. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more interviews with in-house counsel over on the in-house centre at practicallaw.com.au. Thanks for listening today and across 2020. From all of us here at Thomson Reuters and Practical Law Australia, we wish you a safe and healthy festive season. Be sure to join us again next year when we will once again go inside in-house. 